0: I have to say, of course, that this is one of the more interesting conversations I've ever had on a Valentine's Day. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm very impressed with you guys. I was going to say that you do this on a... I, I hope you have something better to do later on during... during
0: <laughs> Hi, and welcome to the Thinking Global podcast. The podcast for thinking about global politics. I'm going to be your host. My name is Kieran O'Meara and I'm going to be joined by a co-host from the e-International Relations podcast team. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Tusharika Dekka. Tusharika is not only an editor-at-large at at e-International Relations, but she is also a doctoral researcher at the University of Nottingham. Come on, say hi Tusharika.
2: (laughs) Welcome to the Thinking Global podcast, I'm Tusharika Dekka.
0: For our very first episode, we thought that what we would do was interview one scholar in particular, whose work has typified what it is to think globally about politics and international relations, and in his case, in terms of international history. So for our very first episode, we decided that we would interview Professor Anna Westad from Yale University. Professor Westad is a scholar of modern, international, and global history, with a specialisation in the history of Eastern Asia since the 18th century. Three works of his are particularly significant. The Global Cold War, which argues for ways of understanding the Soviet-American conflict in light of late and post-colonial change in Asia, Africa, and the Caribbean. Restless Empire, which discusses broad trends in China's international history since 1750, and the brilliant The Cold War or World History, which summarises the origins, conduct and results of the conflict on a global scale. Today, WestEd is mainly interested in researching histories of empire and imperialism, first and foremost in Asia, but also worldwide. He is also trying to figure out how China's late 20th century economic reforms came into being and how their outcomes changed the global economy. Okay, okay, let's do it. Let's interview. Hi, Professor Westad, thank you so much for being here with us today. It's a great
1: pleasure to be with you.
0: Okay, so my first question is, what is it to think globally in relation to history for you?
1: I think the most important thing in terms of being able to deal with global issues is to think about what affects people's lives on a on a global or at least a regional scale the most. I think as an historian I've always been preoccupied how our world today came into being and, and to do so in a in a critical fashion not just to look at the structures that exist but also the many ways in which they originated, think about alternatives, and thereby also think about ways in which we can make the world that we live in today better. So that, to me, it will have to be, in our day and age, and probably has been for the last three generations, necessarily global projects. And therefore, the understanding that is built into them would also have to be global. I must say, though, that... You know that's not the same thing as saying that all significant research, you know, like within the areas that I'm interested, would necessarily have to be global in nature. But it would say something about them being informed by research that either has large-scale sets of issues as that subject, or uh, 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 discussions, uh, theories, historiographies uh, that take into consideration not just the comparative but also the extensive in terms of the spread of various global phenomena that we are preoccupied with today I mean from you know the rise of capitalism on a global scale to issues that have to do with uh, international uh, political systems the concept of ideologies the concept of democracy and and, and, and liberation and so forth so th- that's to me in a way what the global Means It's a capacious definition, but to me it has been useful in terms of thinking about, you know, where we want to go research-wise on these kinds of questions.
0: Hmm, interesting, interesting. So, a lot of your work relates to the Cold War. What do you think we can learn by looking at international relations between states during the Cold War for the contemporary
1: world? I think we can learn quite a bit about great power behavior especially through looking at the cold war though as you know i've been very skeptical of those ideas that think that what we are looking at today in terms of international relations is some kind of repeat some kind of replay of the cold war to me it's a very different international system but that's not the same thing as saying that we can't learn from what went before i mean in any ways that's the only thing we have to learn from. So I think the study of the Cold War international system is of great significance, maybe particularly on issues such as war and peace, issues that have to do with regions, issues that have to do with great power behavior, um, have to do with uh, weapons of mass destruction on a broad scale, and perhaps particularly nuclear weapons. so there are lots of things, including, of course, issues connected to interstate and diplomatic practice that we can pick from the Cold War. But my overall in terms of teaching terms, my, my overall framework for this, Kieran, is that the international system that we are looking at today, to me, doesn't look in its structure very much like the Cold War. It reminds me much more of the world at the end of the 19th century, or rather the beginning of the 20th century than what it does the Cold War international system. Uh, uh, It has very significant differences from the Cold War. It's not driven by alternative visions of the future in terms of economics and ideology. It is not driven by one part of the international system, back in that day the Soviet Union, now sometimes you know the focus is on China, that the opposing power to the United States it's, is outside the international system overall. That was the case with the Soviet Union, but it's not the case with China today. China is very much an insider. So I could go on and on about this. I mean, I don't believe, for instance, that uh, the world today is becoming more bipolar, uh, like in a Cold War setting. I think, if anything, it's becoming more multipolar. So there are significant differences, but that's not the same thing as saying that we can't learn from the Cold War.
2: Now that you have discussed about the multipolar world, there's a lot of debate about a new cold war emerging between China and the US, um, especially given the recent spy balloon affair. Do you see such a conflict being likely? And if so, what would define that conflict?
1: So there will undoubtedly be a great deal of conflict between the United States and China, Going forward, we're seeing the framework for that today, and I don't think the situation is going to get any better over the next decade, unless there are very significant changes to the global structures overall. So I foresee a period, though, as I've said, within a multipolar setting, where conflict rivalry between the United States and China is going to be one defining element. So there's no doubt that that is an important part of the time we live in and and the time period that lies before us. But not all conflicts are cold wars. And I think it's important to note that if we are going to come clean about the kind of of terminologies that we use, and that's very helpful if you want to think straight about international affairs. Um, Cold wars are very Peculiar international systems, quite rare in human history overall. Um, in part because of their their relentless bipolarity, uh, but also uh, because of the way these the, the systems tend to be structured. They tend to be not only bipolar but sort of mutually exclusive in in in, in terms of alliance patterns and in terms of impacts on a on a, on a global scale. So. Uh, it is important to note that, that, uh, and this is not just for, for for show, that there is, there are significant differences between the Cold War, uh, between the United States and the Soviet Union, between capitalism and communism on a global scale and the way it was played out, than anything I, I think we will see in international affairs, at least for the foreseeable future. But that's not an argument. Uh, I, against this becoming a very problematic, ever-expanding set of conflicts that will make international affairs much harder to handle than what they've been in the past. Possibly even harder to handle in many ways, in great power terms, because of the multipolarity, uh, than what we saw even during the Cold War, at least during the phases of the Cold War, uh, when, when the conflict itself was more circumscribed.
0: Okay, so I have to admit... My favourite work of yours, which I bet you hear all the time, by the way, is The Global Cold War, wherein you explored the role of interventions in the Third World during the Cold War. How has the role of the Third World, or developing world, changed on the international sphere since the Cold War, and if there were to be a new Cold War, how prominent do you think developing states would be in that conflict? just a few things to unpack there.
1: (laughs) So I think the framework in terms of how international affairs operate have very much followed the directions of other structural elements of global affairs, maybe first and foremost, economic and and demographic developments that we see quite clearly today, and that, that diverge very, very much, not just from the Cold War era, but from anything that's gone before it, probably going back at least to the middle part of the 18th century. And what was gone, I think, is that uh, relentless predominance uh, of European or European-centered countries, uh, great powers that, that dominated international affairs for, you know, about 200, 250 years. I think that has, we've seen this towards the end of the 20th century, how much of that Europe-centered, in the widest sense of that concept, world has disappeared and is gradually being replaced with something that is truly more global. And and the post-colonial world, of course, is central to that. Um, So there are several things that are happening here at the same time. I mean, one is, of course, the remarkable um, change in, in, in the global economy, where... Uh, the center of global economic activity is moving ever uh, further eastward. So uh, 100 years ago, it would definitely be in Europe. Today, increasingly, it is Eastern Asia, this vast uh, area from, from the Indian uh, subcontinent and all the way over to, 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 to Korea and China. So I think that's one, one big change here. But of course, it's not only there that you see this change in in global economic terms. You you also have to think about this in terms of the future. And when I wrote that book, I wrote it very much because of my concern about what had happened in part as a result of of, uh, foreign interventions, European-type interventions. Uh, against the third world project and and into post-colonial states. I think what you are what you're seeing now is a trend in which many post-colonial states or countries uh, are still facing challenges in terms of in terms of intervention. I mean one example which is European based is of course the, the uh, the current war in Ukraine. But also if you go further further field if you go to africa for instance which i was quite preoccupied with when i wrote the the global cold war uh you, you see new patterns coming into being i mean it's striking to me for instance the degree to which many post-colonial states in africa have stabilized maybe not always in the form that their population would like to see but seeing considerable levels of economic growth coming through economic activity and not least having this unique position, which I think will be for more and more uh, uh, central as we move into the next decade, of really being the only continent in the world where there is natural population growth. So, you know, the, the impact that that's going to have for international affairs is going to be massive, and it's going to privilege um, many countries in Africa, which are the only ones in which that demographic growth takes place. So... I think we are seeing enormous changes. We have seen enormous changes just since I wrote that book now almost 20 years ago. But I think we are now just in the middle of a period in which we will probably see them with greater clarity than we have ever done before.
2: One of my favorite work of yours is The Restless Empire. Um, in the contemporary era, how would you define uh, the global nature of China's foreign policy?
1: So China obviously has become increasingly globally oriented, first and foremost, in terms of its its economy. Right. But gradually, I think it, this will also extend into other areas, such as security and, 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 and strategy, more in a, in a, in a political and a, and a diplomatic and also in, increasingly a military sense. Um, we are still in the early days of this, and I think it's important to to recognize that. As, as you will know from having read the book, I first came to, to China in the late 1970s when China was a dirt poor and, and, and terrified society after the just after the end of the, of the cultural revolution. I mean, the fact that it has expanded in terms of its economy, the way that it has over a little bit more than a generation is, is mind boggling. Right. But we should also remember, of course, that in, even though the speed with which it's happened has, has taken, I think everyone I know by surprise, mm-hmm. including my Chinese friends, mm-hmm. um, it is to some extent a return to a, to a global norm. I mean, You know, China and India, some form of India, um, have historically always been not just the biggest economies, but the most productive economies in the world, right? Um, There were exceptions uh, coming out of the 19th and early part of the 20th century, but then it turned around the end rather rather quickly. So I think in that sense, one shouldn't be surprised uh, at the increased position that China now has in India, I think will get sooner than most people think in terms of global international affairs. That influence, that position, is first and foremost economic. I think the big challenge for China at the moment is how it can convert its tremendous economic success over into a direction that creates a better basis for China's interaction with the rest of its region. All of this enormous Eastern Asia region going from south asia and all the way up to northeast asia um and and the, the current chinese leadership to me doesn't seem quite to have found a handle on on how to do that i mean for at least some of them uh, economic success translates into regional predominance and of course historically it has to many extent uh, many uh, to to some extent been the be in the situation, that that's the direction that things are taking. The problem for China is that in doing so, it also comes up against the aspirations of many other countries that themselves are seeing very significant economic growth. Uh, think about Southeast Asia and, 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 uh, and, and, and South Asia. So the idea that you can, out of China's tremendous economic growth, get sort of China-centered Eastern Asian world Yeah, I'm less convinced about that. I'm probably even less convinced about that now than I would have been, say, 15 or 20 years ago because of the growth that's happening elsewhere. So this is where one has to be very careful, I think, from a Chinese perspective, in translating that advantage that China's economic growth has given it onto ideas about regional and possibly even much longer term global predominance. Um, This would perhaps have been something uh, that would have been, if not achievable, at least something one could aspire for if the situation had been that it's only China that is growing at this rate. The kind of exception that we got with regard to Europe back in the late 18th century. But that is not the case. Right? China is not the only economy that is growing, the only framework that is expanding. So you know, if China pushes further in that direction, I, I also see a lot of conflict coming out of that.
2: So you've lived across different countries, you have written in different languages, you speak multiple languages, so what is that one language you think, and what's that your thoughts are in and you feel closer to, And do you think um, language makes an impact on your understanding about the world today?
1: I think language is very important for how you understand the world because it impacts how you can express your thoughts. Oh. And how you can refine those thoughts, even if they are thoughts that you only keep to yourself. Yeah. Uh, you have to think as well as, as express yourself uh, in a language that is relevant for what you are thinking about, what you are, what you are writing about. Um, for me now, I guess this has a lot to do with what kind of issues I'm dealing with. As, as you've noted, my work has been rather spread out in many ways in terms of what I'm interested in and I'm interested in far too many things for my own good, I think some people would say. And and language, of course, goes with that, and, and, and acquiring language skills go with that as well. I think for the time being, I mean, particularly since I'm based at the U.S. university at the moment, most of my thinking is in English. Mm. But, you know, if I if I think, as I have done recently, about matters with regard to China, of course, I... the the, the concepts, the terms that I use to myself are in Chinese. So, you know, it doesn't take long for me to to be in China before increasingly much of my of my thinking, particularly in terms of terms of terminologies, actually turn to Chinese. Um, So, you know, I think that's how it works for an increasing number of people. I mean, for my generation, in a way, there would have been some, but not that many people who had the privilege of picking up various languages and used them for professional purposes. Mm-hmm. Today, the number is enormous. Right. I mean, just look at Yale University where I teach. Uh, you know, the number of people who come to us you know, when, they, when they come as come the graduate students, with just fantastic language skills um, is very, very high. Uh, And then, of course, they acquire more when when they are here. And importantly, um, at least in some cases, not all of these are heritage speakers, right? I mean, they are not people who have grown up in a family home that's bilingual or trilingual, in which one of these languages that they can handle are languages that come out of their own background. They have learned it. They've learned it in grade school and high school. Um, I had a, a seminar last fall with... 15 brilliant Yale undergrads, among whom were four uh, fluent Chinese speakers, not one of whom had this as part of their uh, background in in heritage terms. So I think the, the, the possibilities today, not least when you think about international affairs as a field, for people coming into this much better equipped in terms of of linguistic skills than what was the case before. That's also going to revolutionize the discipline in in, in broad terms. And I think we're seeing the beginning of that already now. Hmm.
0: Okay, so I have one final question for you, which is, who are you reading at the moment? And what would you recommend for our listeners to go away and read?
1: So I'm reading two things at the moment. I'm, I'm, I'm actually lucky this semester because my teaching is is a bit um more limited than it, it usually is. So I have a little bit more time to read. The one that I'm I'm reading right now is a book by Tanvi Madan called Faithful Triangle, How China Shaped US India Relations during the Cold War. But I think her work is 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 really interesting in the sense that it deals with the Sino-Indian relationship. Um in, in, in longer terms, but it does so within the Cold War framework in order to try to understand where it comes from. So I think that's also, of course, very close to my own, my own interests. Um, I've also been reading or rereading now in book form, a book by one of my former students, uh, Natalia Telyepneva, who now uh, teaches in, uh, up in Scotland, called Cold War Liberation, the Soviet Union and the Collapse of the Portuguese Empire. And um, uh, I've been reading that and rereading that in part because I was in Portugal a couple of weeks ago uh, at a conference that dealt, among other things, with uh, the international effects of the 1974 Portuguese revolution. And, and Natasha's work, is, which is remarkably accomplished in terms of, of the sources that she has from the Soviet Union, from Portugal, from, from Africa, from Angola. is an example of how you can understand uh, that particular setup included status and status, but also to try to think about the effects that that would have for today, not least in an African context.
0: Love all of that. <laughs> okay, Professor Weststead, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much.
1: It was a great pleasure, Kirin. and Tusharika. Take care. Thank you.
0: Wow. So you've been listening to myself, Kieran O'Meara, and Tusharika Decker in conversation with Professor Arna Westad from Yale University, talking about everything from global history to what it is to think global, to China and the way in which we think in language. Really, really fun stuff. <laughs> I cannot thank Tusharika enough for being my co-host on this one. Thanks, to Tusharika. <laughs> and I'd also like to thank the rest of the podcast team at International Relations This episode has been brought to you by Edward Curry, Abigail Glynn, Nigel Huckle, Aidan Ismail, Victoria Ivaniuk, Daniel McDade, Eduardo Pieroni, Beatrice Silva, music also by Material Music. And a massive, massive thanks has to be given to Jennifer Milano at Yale, without whom this interview would simply not have happened. Thank you so much, Jen. So at Thinking Global we are part of e-International Relations, the world's leading open access website for scholars and students of international relations. If you haven't already done so, go to the website at eir.info. There you'll be able to find loads of features, loads of articles, and loads of stuff relating to international relations. There you'll just be able to find loads more content, and also check out E-International Relations on social media, where you'll be notified about all this content that's free to access. But in the meantime, I'm Kieran O'Meara. I'm the Tika. And we've been Thinking, Thinking Global. Global. Episode 1. Did it, mate. Got the T-shirt. <laughs>